You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the powerful connection between our mitochondrial function and COVID-19, and it's some really, really eye-opening new data. And also, we're going to be looking at the undervalued connection between blood glucose dysregulation and its link with COVID-19 as well. Plus, we've got some additional data looking at sedentary behavior in regards to COVID-19, and we're going to touch on this controversial subject of natural immunity. So this episode is absolutely filled with vital and important information. It's coming from one of the smartest human beings that I know and just grateful to have him as a part of my life and a resource to look to. We have a lot of conversation about these things, you know, behind the scenes. And this is important for us to have these conversations, to question things, to, to look at things from different perspectives and different angles. I see things that he doesn't and vice versa and being able to come to rational conclusions that can actually help our citizens, help our families. Right now, a lot of people are experiencing a lot of infighting and a lot of contention among their own family members. We're so divided right now, and it's so unfortunate. And so we're even going to be touching on that a little bit in this episode. So again, this is packed with incredible information. And also speaking of this mitochondrial connection, you know, these are these energy power plants in our cells giving off this cellular currency for our bodies to do processes in the form of ATP. You know, this conversion process, turning food into usable energy, it's a, it's a serious conversion process. It's like a foreign exchange with currency, like trying to convert some yen into some dollars or some pesos into some shillings, all right? So it's like this conversion process. And... This process, if we're taking again like a, a certain food stuff and trying to convert it into energy, it's a pretty arduous thing for our bodies to do. And our bodies are miraculous in its form and, and capacity to do this. But there are certain things that actually bypass and accelerate this energy exchange or even being used by our cells directly. One of those things is medium chain triglycerides, a randomized double blind study published in the International Journal of Obesity and Related Metabolic Disorders, placed participants on a reduced calorie diet that included either supplemental MCTs or supplemental long-chain triglycerides, or LCTs. After the data was compiled, it was revealed that the group who included MCTs lost more weight, eliminated more body fat, and experienced higher levels of satiety. Again, it could be on the same diet, but these particular oils, specifically these medium chain triglycerides, can make a tremendous difference in our overall metabolic function and our energy. The MCTs that I use literally every single day is from onit.com. They're sourcing things the right way and they're making sure that you're getting an MCT oil that has the maximum efficacy with no nefarious chemicals or anything of that nature. It's just 100%. Source, again, source the right way, MCT oil. Go to onit.com forward slash model. That's O-N-N-I-T dot com forward slash model. And you're going to get 10% off their original MCT oil, 100% MCT oil. 
And they also have these incredible emulsified MCT oils. And actually, I've had both today. And one drink that I made, I had the original MCT oil and another drink that I made. I made a protein shake and added some of the emulsified MCT oil in there as well. It's like a coffee creamer. It's really awesome. Tastes amazing. And something I always travel with as well. I absolutely love the benefits with these MCTs. But again, just getting it from Company X, you're not going to get the same high quality product to get these incredible results seen in peer reviewed trials. So go to onit.com forward slash model for 10% off their incredible MCT oil and everything else that they carry. And now let's get to our Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled The Podcast I Always Turn To by Gabby D. I've listened to Sean off and on for a couple of years. If I'm ever feeling down on myself, either mentally or physically, the Model Health Show always pumps me back up and motivates me to do better. Thank you so much for creating such an incredible podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for leaving me that review over on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate it so much. If you've yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Mike Mutzel holds a bachelor's degree in biology and a master's degree in clinical nutrition. And he's also a best-selling author and host of the incredible high-intensity health series on podcast platform and on YouTube. And now he's back on the Model Health Show to share his insights. Let's jump into this incredible conversation with the amazing Mike Mutzel. All right, my guy, Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Sean. It's great to be with you. Yeah. Again. So there's some big news that just came out regarding our mitochondria yes. in COVID-19. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, to me, I think it's a fascinating way to sort of connect the dots between exercise insufficiency, obesity, all the metabolic syndrome, and it's linked with severe COVID uh, outcomes and all that. But yeah, the scientists in, in uh, Switzerland actually have been looking at the mitochondria. And it, I guess it's been long known since like 2010, which honestly, I didn't know about any of this research. When you think about your mitochondria, we think about energy production, you know, moving your muscles, running, uh, all of the you know, creation of cellular energy in the form of ATP. But it turns out that on the exterior cell membrane of your mitochondria, which are if we think about, you've probably talked about this in, a, in, in your shows before, but organelles, if we think about our house, we have different little tools in our houses, like furnaces and dishwashers and all of that. Well, think about all your cells, you have many appliances in there and the organelles, the mitochondria are one of those appliances that help create energy uh, because you can't directly oxidize, well, you, it, you know, fats and, and carbohydrates have to get split down and to make ATP. Anyway, so Mitochondria have these antiviral peptides on their exterior cell membrane, and it's uh, this. It, it's really involved in increasing levels of interferon, and interferon are really involved in the innate immune system. So that's part of the problem with severe disease is people don't mount a sufficient innate immune system response. The virus can increase its viral load and cause all this collateral damage. Well, it turns out that this is a critical part of our innate immune system, and increasing all these downstream signaling pathways via interferon. So to me, I think it's fascinating because yeah. there's a lot of free things we can do to support mitochondrial health. Everything from compressing your feeding window, intermittent fasting, walking, uh, weight training, like all of these things are available for most people pretty accessible, yet we don't hear about them, right? Um, so a lot of people want to know, how do you test for your mitochondria? There's not really, to my knowledge, like a commercially available test. You might look at organic acids that can Bill out different intermediates indicating mitochondrial dysfunction. But, you know, if people have 
uh, exercise insufficiency or the inability to properly exercise. You get really winded when you're taking out the trash or you're, you're picking up your kid or whatever. That might be a subtle indicator that you have mitochondrial dysfunction. And, and so if you go into this situation, we're going into winter, you know, as, as we record this, there's influenza, there's SARS-CoV-2, there's different pathogens. If you have mitochondrial dysfunction, we can't really expect your body to mount a sufficient innate immune system response to take care of that pathogen before it starts to replicate. And it turns out that your mitochondria are also a target for these pathogens. Like they like mm. to leverage the, the biomolecules within your mitochondria. And so that's the thing. So if, if you have you know, dysfunctional mitochondria from eating omega-6 enriched diets, processed foods, you're metabolically inflexible because you eat a lot of uh, sugar and refined carbohydrates that favor glucose oxidation, then maybe you're gonna have a tougher time with a pathogen. So to me, I think it's just so exciting because again, we have accessible tools that are free, walking, fasting, eating better foods, uh, all of that um, are accessible. So we should be, this should be front page news yes. if you ask me. <laughs> I agree, I agree. And it's because of folks like you that are making this news. And it just makes sense. This is getting back to things that are very logical. Our mitochondria are really these generators of our energy. Our immune system requires energy. It's just a basic connective tissue right there. And so if we're having insufficient functions in that area, obviously we're going to be at a disadvantage. And so if we're looking at, and also I love this connection with the interferons, mm. which is a critical aspect of being able to defend the body against viruses and the like. So, and I love the fact here that we can do something about this and just something very practical, which is, I love that you mentioned, we don't necessarily have a test, but we do, which is paying attention to our bodies. We can probably notice if we're feeling winded easily, if we're venturing into being overweight, a little bit into obesity, or we're experiencing a chronic condition, having some autoimmune issues, that there might be something very likely some deficiency happening with our mitochondria, right? So this is again, nudging us into actually getting our citizens healthier. Oh, totally. And it's interesting that you brought that up. And I, I thought of something that I forgot to mention. Uh, our liver and our gut have a lot of mitochondria. Like, so your, your, your gut, your intestines are, are moving and, and you know, the motility and peristaltis, all the aspects of digestion and so forth. So a lot of people have gut dysfunction. So that could be a, another potential indicator but the liver is really enriched in mitochondria. And so a simple blood test, and I recommend blood work, and we can dive into some of the nuances here. Uh, the, the category of blood tests, the liver function test, really common, AST, ALT, and GGT. So anytime you go to your doctor or healthcare practitioner, or you just go to directlabs.com or however you get your labs, you should run a comprehensive liver function panel. It's just these three tests, but when they start to increase, and these are just units, it's just uh, international units per liter, so when they start to increase over 25 or 30, that is an indicator that your liver is accumulating fat. And that would be a su suggestion that the mitochondria are unable to keep up with the demand of all the supply from insulin resistance. And so that could be a proxy as well. So fatty liver disease would be an indicator of mitochondrial dysfunction mm -hmm. specifically in the liver. So I encourage people to test for that for sure. Yeah, that makes sense as well. So you mentioned as well that one way to encourage healthy mitochondria function, production, is a little bit of intermittent fasting or restricting our feeding windows. You know, we have those benefits with autophagy, obviously, but then there's another aspect, mitophagy. Can you talk a little bit about that too? Yeah, I mean, 
autophagy is so fascinating to me, and I know it's an interest of yours as well. Um, but if we think about when you hear about autophagy on the internet, we think that it's just you turn on the switch and it's just this one, it's just this uniform process, but there's a lot of subtypes of autophagy and mitophagy is one of them. There's xenophagy, which is how you actually catabolize viruses as well. So there's all these different subtypes of autophagy, lipophagy, which is how you break down fat. So it's, it's fascinating. But anyway, so mitophagy is a process of taking those kind of rusty, squeaky mitochondria that really are not, they're kind of old, so to speak, and they should be broken down into their constituents. Um, and so mitophagy is this process that uh, helps to break down those cellular components and proteins and membranes and so forth that can be reused to make new healthy mitochondria. Well, it turns out if people are snacking all the time, if they're not exercising, if they have elevated levels of glucose and insulin from you know eating ultra-processed, hyper-palatable food, then those mitochondria never get the signal by way of mitophagy to undergo this healthy renewal process. Mm. And so that's what's really interesting. And I think this is why I'm such a proponent of exercise. Like, uh, you know, I've, I've personally benefited a lot from intermittent fasting and eating low carb, but the people that are more physically fit can get away with fasting less to get a, a, a different, a, a more proportional increase in autophagy. So there was, which is related to mitophagy. So there was one study that, that tracked intermittent fasting for 36 hours in overweight individuals who didn't exercise versus lean people who did exercise. And so they looked for autophagy initiation factors in both of those individuals doing muscle biopsies and so forth. And what they found is that in the people that regularly exercised compared to the sedentary overweight controls, in 36 hours, there was like a 300% increase in autophagy initiation proteins, which again are linked to mitophagy that we're talking about compared to the individuals who were overweight. So okay. your degree of so-called fitness amplifies the benefits of intermittent fasting. And, and that to me is pretty exciting because a lot of people hear about fasting. They think, that, okay, I got to fast for seven days. We're like, well, maybe if you're morbidly obese, you know, to get the benefits of autophagy. But if you lift weights regularly, if you walk with your kids, if you go to the park, you go hiking, you know, maybe just a periodic 36-hour fast or even just an 18-hour intermittent fast can get to that same um, sort of beneficial autophagy and mitophagy-related processes. So I'm, I'm a huge fan. We can dive into early time-restricted feeding and all of that and, and talk about some studies linked with longevity there. But yeah, I, I think it's super interesting because again, it's free, it's accessible. Yeah. Even if people don't have the means or the resources to go out and buy healthier food, if you just eat in a, a more confined short window, eight, six hours, then you can get the benefits uh, by, by changing the substrates in your blood. So kind of the, the three hormonal, sort of the recipe to induce mitophagy or autophagy, low blood glucose, low blood insulin, and high glucagon. And the way that we can increase, you know, create this sort of hormonal cocktail that initiates autophagy is by exercising when we're fasted. So just first thing in the morning, you have an early dinner, maybe you eat before six or seven, something along those lines, go out and go for a walk or, you know, go do some yoga, like first thing in the morning. And that can deplete your glycogen, which will trigger this process by decreasing blood glucose, dropping insulin and raising glucagon. And that recipe triggers the, enhance, it sort of initiates the aut autophagy related processes. So. You're anyway. making it sound very simple, you know, just like let's finish our dinner at a certain time, get some good sleep, wake up in the morning, do a little bit of exercise, then enjoy the rest of your day, have a little something to eat. It sounds very doable. And like you said, it's, it's free to activate these systems. 
And I love the fact that this integrates it. What this really marries with is these are the things that our genes expect us to do in the first place. We evolved having times of feasting and times of fasting. Yeah. And now today, obviously, we don't have that built in. And culturally, you know, working with my son, so my son, we were just talking about this. Yeah. I'm teaching him a nutritional science class as part of his homeschooling program. Since, you know, the, the environment has kind of put us in this position, now I get to really teach him the stuff that I should be teaching him anyways, that he should be learning in his educational institution, but it's nothing remotely close. And we were talking about, because he was asking, why do we eat these certain foods at breakfast in our culture? I was like, so what do we, what do people typically eat? Like, he's been to events with me. He can see, like, what do people put out at the event at the hotel? It's muffins, mm. bagels. We've got- Orange juice. Orange juice. We've got the, you know, low-fat milk. We've got pancakes, waffles, cereal, all of these very, very carbohydrate-dense, sugar-dense substances to start the day, right? And he's just asking, like, why do, and, I, and I, said, I gave him an example, you know, what if somebody eats some fish for breakfast or eats a salad for breakfast? And he's just looking like, what? That sounds so weird. I was like, why does it sound weird? It's because of our cultural programming as to what we tend to eat at each meal. And also part of our cultural programming is the fact that we eat so frequently in our culture. One of the studies that I talked about in Eat Smarter, it just tracked a bunch of folks and found the average person's eating about 15 hours a day, you know, throughout that span. And simply by having folks to compress that, that eating window from 15 to 10 to 12 hours, folks, without restricting calories, by the way, lost weight, became more insulin sensitive, improvements in leptin, the list goes on and on. Just by compressing that eating window. So this is really remarkable. And again, something our genes expect us to do. And I want to lean into this because again, the benefits are seen greater when we are more fit, when we're physically fit, active, lifting weights, doing a little bit of walking. This is the part I want to lean into more because there's some more data now about yeah. exercise being a absolutely critical component of protection against this virus that's on everybody's mind. It's crazy. And, and again, this should be front page news. And I, I want to get to that, but just kind of dovetail off what you were saying with your son. Um, it's amazing how like our kids are sponges, you know? So yeah. speaking of this compressing the feeding window and snacking, like we've been, you know, not formally as a way that you have yet, um, but just kind of tacitly, you know, through our own talking in the family dinner table and so forth. My daughter's nine. So the other night we were coming back from doing something, we were bi mountain biking or whatever, and it was eight o'clock. And I was like, man, I'm getting kind of hungry. And what do you want for dinner? She's like, Dad, it's too late to eat dinner right now. And so she was trying to educate. Wow. So she's, they pick up on this stuff. So I think it's so important, like, like what you're doing and we should all be doing this because, you know, the studies from the CDC actually just showed and the, the American or journal of the American medical association found that kids have gained the, the rate of which obesity has been increasing doubled from, you know, it was like January, 2020 to, to just now. Oh. So during COVID. And this is from the CDC. This isn't the Journal of Conspiracy Theories Research. So because <laughs> kids have been stuck at home, not exercising, they are getting more and more overweight. And it, and it happened, you know, the categories of kids that were overweight were already obese, that were, they were the most severely affected by yeah. that. So I think it's so important, especially because this concept of recidivism, meaning that if you gain weight, um, it's, it's harder to take that weight. Your body wants to maintain that metabolic homeostatic point. So it's really hard to lose. Especially in childhood. Exactly. Right. Wants to hang on. So that's, it's very unlikely that those kids will be spontaneously lean later in life. Right. You know, um, anyway, so really important for parents. And I think this should be 
because we know that you know the collateral damage linked with obesity, especially starting out at that age where atherosclerosis starts, the, the formation of the narrowing of the arteries at age four, right? So really important stuff, but getting back to your question about exercise, um, you know, this was considered a conspiracy theory, right? That exercise could somehow improve outcomes when it comes to this current public health problem. And, you know, last time in April, when we were on the Kaiser Permanente study of 48,000 subjects um, show that regular exercise was linked with re reduced odds of ending up in the hospital, ending up in the ICU and even dying. But since then, many more studies have come out in China, South Korea. Um, one was like 1.3 million individuals in the Swedish army, what they, they tracked objective strength out proxies and so forth from going back to the 50s. This study was super fascinating. So they had all these like objective, you know, um, strength tests and things like that, that, that for people in the military. And they, they retroactively then went back and looked and looked at that data and then found, you know, any correlation with outcome when it comes to COVID. And the people that were stronger and more physically active way back when they were like teenagers and in their early 20s had lower odds of dying and being severely impacted by COVID in Sweden. So this was super fascinating. Uh, another study in, in China, and this was early in the pandemic, but the paper was just recently published. It was 164 individuals. And what they found is, you know, when they were in the hospital, the researchers, you know, they had this idea to conduct this study. So they asked individuals, how much do you exercise? Uh, and then how intense is that exercise? So uh, exercise insufficiency was, if you did not, in terms of minutes per week, if you did not exercise for at least 150 minutes per week in, in, in divided doses, and then the other proxy was less than 75 minutes of vigorous intensity exercise throughout the week. And what they found is that uh, in the groups that, were, that recorded regular physical activity, 0% of them died compared to it was like 7% of individuals who recorded that they were inactive, right? So the rates of death, the odds, the odds ratio was like 6.7 times greater in the people who were physically inactive compared to the people who were physically active. And again, this should be front page yeah, news. Yeah, that's because a massive difference. Huge. And, and But again, this was like, no, I don't remember here, and hearing CNN or any of the legacy media outlets talking about this. And, uh, you know, and so- tons of data on exercise. And, and I think it comes back to mechanistically, you know, it's like, Hey, well, okay, how does this work? And we can then dive into how exercise shapes the immune system in this particular, it's really healthy. Um, this part of your adaptive immune system called the T cell. And it turns out that people that regularly exercise have lower percentages of senescent T cells. And we can define all that sort of stuff in a moment. So that's one aspect. We know that the mitochondria are increased. We talked about mitophagy. And I, I don't know if I totally made this very clear, but exercise is one of the best ways to increase autophagy and mitophagy. So when people think about autophagy, like you mentioned, just want to just button this up. Um, exercise is arguably one of the better ways to do it. So we, all, we obviously think about fasting first when it comes to autophagy, but various studies have shown that one of the, how we get the adaptations from exercise, like Okay, you go crush it at CrossFit, right? Your muscles are burning. That recovery and those adaptations that help your muscles become stronger for the next workout session are mediated by this process of autophagy. So that's what's cool. When you get mm -hmm. sore, you're like, all right, I know that autophagy is kicking in to help those damaged proteins recover and repair. So anyway, the mechanisms are fascinating. But to me, the, the T cell and yeah. this links with the immunity, because you, you, you said it eloquently, Sean, is, you know, the our metabolism and our immunity 
are basically two sides of the same coin and they're interconnected. And that's why we see so many different uh, diseases linked with diabetes where insulin resistance from dementia, Alzheimer's, heart disease, fatty liver disease, cancer, autoimmunity. And as we continue to talk about the sort of immunometabolism model, which, uh, have you talked about this on the show? I don't want to like, immunometabolism? No. All right. Just talk about it. This is so fascinating to me. And I, I know it sounds confusing and like um, intimidating, immunometabolism, but it's this idea that our immune system and our metabolic system are really two sides of the same coin. And so if you think about someone that has an autoimmune disease or cancer, so these are diseases by that are dysregulated by the immune system. They're characterized by immune system dysfunction. If you give those individuals a classic metabolic supportive drug like metformin, their conditions get better. The inverse is also true. You take a diabetic, type two diabetic that has inflammation, you give them a drug that helps reduce and affect their immune system, their diabetes gets better. So we've been looking at medicine through this sort of compartmentalized spectrum, right? If you have a brain disorder, you go to the psychiatrist or the neurologist. If you have a cardiovascular issue, you go to the, cardi you know, the cardiologist. But it turns out that all these organs crosstalk and intercommunicate. So immunometabolism, I think, it's with COVID going on, it's a great time to sort of talk about it because it, it helps us better understand tangible ways to improve the health of our population and reduce vulnerabilities. Because if you become more metabolically healthy, you improve the resilience of your immune system. And one of the really interesting case in points about this, and we can go back to exercise in the T cells, yeah. is there's a drug that's been used with great success when it comes to treating diabetes called metformin. Metformin, uh, I know people have this perception that drugs are inherently bad. If there's one drug that you can pick, that would be the one. In fact, a lot of people that are promoting longevity take metformin maybe every other day or something, and we can dive into natural. Prophylactically in a sense. Yeah, have you ever taken it by chance? I have not, no. Of course, I've worked with many, many people yeah. taking metformin. And we talked about this with David Sinclair, it's kind of like the, the, the pinnacle of longevity research right now. And metformin, that's one of the things that's added to his, his regimen. Yeah, metformin and rapamycin, which we can get into. But, but anyway, I, to me, it's fascinating. Well, that drug was actually developed to treat influenza, which is crazy. So to treat- What do you know? Stop it, Mike. <laughs> Stop Dude, it. I was diving into this and I, I was blown away. So it's, that's what it was initially studied to be effective for. And then it turns out that it also helps lower blood sugar. So that to me is just so fascinating. You know, like, like well, how mechanistically does this work? And it, it turns out it affects the mitochondria. That's how metformin works. And then we just kind of talked about earlier about how the mitochondria are involved in the innate immune system response and interferon. So anyway, this stuff is really fascinating to me. So the take-home message, I think, for people listening is we need to have better control over our blood sugar. And so just going down to your local drugstore, CVS or Walgreens, get a blood glucose meter, start to check in. Just like you, you know, people check their bank account every day where they should. People check into their FICA score, their credit score. Why aren't you checking in on your blood glucose levels and also looking at your hemoglobin A1C levels? Because these are now both accessible at home with little test, little finger, 29 gauge, little needle. It's not, not very painful. And you can check into these things. And once you're aware that, like a lot of people think they're eating healthy, like, yeah, I have croutons in my salad, I have a little bread, but I'm pretty healthy. And then you look at your glucose and you're like, wow, my fasting glucose is 120 or 110. Okay, maybe I need to rethink and, and, and change my diet and lifestyle uh, in, a in a different way. 
Yeah. Anyway, I love that analogy of people checking their bank account and credit score. What about your metabolic bank account? You know, take a peek at that. That's so great. And there's so many powerful things there. I want to circle back to the aspect with kids and what we're seeing. Yeah. Because this is a particular passion of both of ours. And one of the reasons we're working so hard right now is to protect our children. And seeing this rapid increase in obesity in our kids like that so quickly, this is a demonstration of, because this was one of the big things propped up, can't get people, people healthier overnight. You can really mess people up overnight and we can, we can get healthier overnight. It's not gonna be perfect, but right now we're really, the longer that this goes on, as, as you mentioned, this is kind of setting the template. It's gonna make it much more difficult for our children to be able to reach and sustain a place of health by pushing them into these conditions that, you know, again, they're not choosing to be obese. They're growing up in these conditions that is making this just a norm, you know? So thank you so much for bringing that up and talking about that. And I wanna talk a little bit more about the T cells and NK cells in regards to exercise. So what, did, what, what do these things do for us, the T cells, NK cells? Great question. Um, so the T cells are part of your adaptive immunity. So when we talked about the interferon and the mitochondria is like a frontline part of your immune system, your immune system is kind of bifurcated into the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. So the innate immune system doesn't really have much memory. It's, it's, it's either stimulated or it's not. So uh, you cut you get a cut, a laceration, you get a, an infection. Your innate immune system is first on the scene. It's like an ambulance first responder. It's gonna help you know, recruit other cells that are necessary, but your adaptive immune system has all the memory. And so your T cells are part of your adaptive immune system. And in fact, they're, they're part of what help us, you know, if we get, re if people have had COVID like myself and hundreds of millions of people probably here in the US, um, what helps us sort of surmount an appropriate adaptive immune response is these T cells. And they crosstalk and help create antibodies as well. So this is what's fascinating to me. You know, when you turn on the media, we hear all about antibodies. So antibodies, antibodies, but it's really the T cells that help mediate the B cells to make antibodies. Like they are really intimately involved in various aspects of aging and also the immune response. But uh, it turns out that our T cell repertoire starts to decline as we age. And so there's this gland called our thymus gland, which is around anatomically near the thyroid. And it, we undergo this process of what's known as thymic involution. And so this thymus starts to shrink and shrink. And again, it's very important because these T cells regulate so many aspects of our immune system and health and longevity. And that's where they originate in the thymus gland. Now, it turns out that the rate at which this thymus atrophy or involution occurs is variable based upon our lifestyle. So if we, if we start smoking cigarettes, if we start drinking a bottle of wine every night, if we're not exercising, if we're hitting up Chick-fil-A and McDonald's, the rate at which our thymus gland atrophies is increased or accelerated. And that leads to a functionally impaired set of T cells called um, immunosenescence. And so these T cells can become senescent. A senescent cell is a cell that should apoptose and die, but it doesn't. And so essentially all of our cells have a, a finite lifespan. And it, as we age, we get more and more dysfunctional or senescent cells. And so this kind of differentiates that helps us better understand chronologic aging versus biologic aging. So we've all met 40 year olds and we go, 
dang, what are you doing? Like, you look great. You know, Sean, I want to know what you're eating. What are you doing? And then we've met people who are 32 and you think they're like 45, right? So that, that is the difference between biologic aging and chronologic aging. And I think this is important. And we've heard about this where we see a, you know, a perfectly healthy 40-year-old in the hospital. And we see the media talk about this perfectly healthy person. And we see the picture and we're like, that to me doesn't look like perfectly healthy. They look a lot older than they appear to be. That is because they're biologically aging faster. And these T cells are involved in this aging process and senescent cells and so forth. So when we regularly exercise, getting back to exercise and T cells, we help to purge the percentage of senescent T cells in our body and in our immune system. And we decrease that. So exercise is a way to sort of take out the trash and get rid of these senescent T cells. Now that is very important because these senescent cells are kind of like how to like a they're like bad kids. You know those kids that your parents didn't want you to hang out with, they cause you to do bad things. And so these senescent cells release, they have what's known as a senescence associated secretory phenotype. It's a big word, I know. Just understand that they're secreting almost like pheromones. I'm oversimplifying, but they're secreting like a pheromone-like molecule that cause your healthy cells to become senescent too. So you want to get rid of those cells and the way that you purge them, the way that you like hit the eject button or whatever, the garbage disposal is by exercising and intensely. So when you exercise intensely, you get some oxygen debt created, you deplete that glycogen, out go those senescent T cells. And so various studies over the years have looked at the percentage of senescent T cells in aged individuals over the age of 65 in individuals who exercise versus don't. And there's a much lower percentage of these so-called dysfunctional senescent T cells. And this is linked with, with better functionality as you age. And what's interesting, if you look, and this was early on in COVID, like in March of 2020, I had this hypothesis, you know, I was reading this research and, and I was looking at this and I'm like, this seems like there is, you know, cause you see these 50 year olds with all these chronic diseases who are dying. I was wondering if biologic age is impacting this. Okay. And there's, there's been a load of studies that have come out that shows that biologic age, which is how you assay this is partly by these T cells and these, these senescent cells is a risk factor for COVID. So if you have all these different chronic diseases, high blood pressure, ages, your, your, uh, you know, your cells, um, obesity, all these diseases help to accelerate the biologic aging process and, and create this inflammaging situation. So as you age, you naturally become more, more inflamed. It's called inflammaging. It's not a made up word. And part of that inflammaging process occurs by way of these senescent cells. So I know I'm repeating myself here. The bottom line is exercise, eat a healthy whole root food diet. And then we can get into NK cells later. Yeah, this is powerful. This really helps to explain why elderly populations have been hardest hit in this scenario and also why children have not. Because that thymus gland, just the immune system itself is so active and so intelligent, you know, just trying to figure out the world. I've been thinking of a lot of, like you said, just kind of ruminating on these ideas very early on looking at these things. And if we take in a condition like diabetes, for example, I really consider it an, an advanced aging disease, an accelerated aging disease because of the inherent inflammation. It's just making the body break down rapidly. And we see that this being one of the leading risk factors, obviously from severe COVID and death, but yet again, we're not doing anything about it. We have epidemics. They've, this has been going on for decades now, and we've just let it happen. We've been sitting back watching it happen and trusting in the same entities that kind of helped to co-create the conditions where this is a thing, 
to somehow fixing COVID, right? And again and again, we're not actually addressing the thing, which is getting people healthier. So let's talk about the NK cells mm -hmm. in regards to this as well, because this is something I've been talking about since the very beginning. I'm talking March, April, just go, taking people through some of the data. Hey, here's a study. It was Appalachian State University. It's going for a short walk, 20 or 30 minute walk. You get an instantaneous boost in your immune parameters, most notably for those NK cells, which appear to have some really good effects at protection from SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. I mean, again, this is part of the innate immune system, super important for health in general, but especially this virus. And a, a series of studies have come out on this, like you're talking about, just exercise, forest bathing, uh, all of that, even vitamin D. And so this was an interesting study in South Korea. I think there was like 200,000 individuals in this electronic medical record that was part of the study. And they looked at uh, all these, maybe it was more like 180, whatever. It was a lot of people. And they found that there was a correlation with adverse outcomes when it comes to this virus and also um, exercise levels and vitamin D levels with this critically important cell that you just mentioned, the natural killer cells. So again, this, this should be front page news because the levels of vitamin D that are, you know, if you go to your mainstream doctor, right, and they don't know anything about integrated medicine, as long as your levels are like 32 nanograms per ml, they're going to be like, you're, you, you don't have a deficiency, so you're, you probably don't need to take any vitamin D. But what this study actually showed is that your levels uh, from an optimal standpoint for natural killer cell activity, that's what they looked at is the activity. How, how functional are these important cells? Like to go out and like Pac-Man, you know, seek and destroy and kill the bad guys and so forth, uh, infected cells and whatnot. So it was about levels were between 55 and 60 nanograms per ml on the vitamin D level. So, and then also, you know, exercise more wasn't always better. That's kind of interesting because we've seen on the media, oh, well, this marathon runner got really sick. Like exercise, like anything in life exerts or adheres to this U-shaped curve phenomena. So there's a sweet spot where it turns out to be around a cumulative 150 minutes per week, 75 of those minutes, half of those should be moderate or, you know, pretty intense, vigorous activity. And so to me, that was fascinating because, and this dovetails, it's perfect that you brought that up now because we've been talking about these T cells and this thymic involution. Well, as we age, our natural killer cells become even more important for the elderly yeah. because they don't have, their T cells are kind of weakened. So it, it seems that we really need to support these natural killer cells, especially in our elderly friends and family uh, because they don't have the T cells there to help. And that was an interesting part of that study uh, that I thought was, I learned, you know, What's cool about this is like, we, we can continue to talk about these benefits later on after COVID, but everyone's so interested in it right now because they want to stay safe. And it just goes to show vitamin D, you can supplement that for like 10 bucks a month. Go out in the sun, you know, um, if you live in North or Southern latitudes. So there's a lot of things that we can do. And turns out that exercise and vitamin D, I really support this critically important cell type. Yeah. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Our microbiome plays major roles in regulating our metabolism, literally playing a role in determining how many calories are absorbed from our food, for example. Our microbiome also controls so much about our mood, with the vast majority of our body's serotonin being produced in our gut. And our microbes interact with these enterochromaffin cells and enteroendocrine cells that produce our hormones and neurotransmitters in our bellies. And one of the biggest issues we're seeing today is gut dysbiosis, where friendly microbes are getting overrun by opportunistic bacteria. One of the few amazing sources of nutrition that's been found clinically 
to reverse gut dysbiosis is highlighted in a study published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. It discovered that the traditional fermented tea called pu'er may be able to reverse gut dysbiosis by dramatically reducing ratios of potentially harmful bacteria and increasing ratios of beneficial bacteria. Another peer-reviewed study published in the journal Nature Communications uncovered that a unique compound called Dia Brownin found in traditional fermented pu'er has remarkable effects on our microbiome as well. And the researchers found that Theo Brownin positively alters gut microbiota and directly reduces hepatic, aka liver fat, and reduces lipogenesis, which means the creation of fat. Pu'er is absolutely amazing on so many levels, and it's also a powerful adjunct to any fat loss protocol because it's been found to support fat loss while protecting muscle at the same time. And this was documented in a recent study featured in Clinical Interventions in Aging. Now the key is the source of the pu'er matters a lot. And the only pu'er that I drink uses a patented cold extraction technology that extracts the bioactive compounds in the tea at cold to low temperatures for up to eight hours. And this process gently extracts natural antioxidants and phytonutrients and preserves them in a whole bioavailable form. And this is the purest way to extract the phytonutrients for maximum efficacy. This pu'er is also wild harvested, making it even more concentrated in the polyphenols that we see having benefits in those clinical trials. Also, triple toxin screened for one of the highest levels of purity, tested for pesticides, heavy metals, and toxic molds, and making sure that it is not in your tea, which is common in most other teas. This is why I'm a massive fan of Peak Teas. Go to peaktea.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A.com forward slash model. And you get 10% off their amazing fermented pu'er and all of their other incredible teas. These teas are in a league of their own. Their pu'er is amazing. I'm a huge fan of their ginger tea as well. Go to peaktea.com forward slash model. Again, you get 10% off everything that they carry. One of the best investments in your health, supporting your microbiome, supporting your metabolism. It is absolutely amazing. Head over to peaktea.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. Early on, one of the first drugs that was being worked on and trying to fast track through the FDA, a lot of folks don't know this, but again, I mentioned this very early on, was a drug to target our NK cells. And it was because the data was indicating pretty clearly that our NK cells are very important, kind of standout-ish aspect of our immune system in this scenario. And now that's kind of, again, been brushed under the rug. And now we're focused on antibodies, which is great. It's definitely a part of the conversation. But even this conversation has been mutated into something very dogmatic. And we actually have real-world science on looking at natural immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity. Let's talk about that. This is so fascinating to me because the fact that the media and all the experts that you see on television really discounted natural immunity uh, was, was to me, mechanistically, it didn't really make sense because, and again, I'm not an anti-vaccination person, but when you get the vaccine, it's not like it's, you're getting an exogenous immune system. You're getting the antigen, which is a spike protein for which your own natural immune system will make memory too. 
And so the fact that we were saying, well, the natural course of infection where you naturally get this spike protein that you'll get if you get the virus, um, you know, that doesn't matter. It's only the immune system memory that's created when you get the spike protein that's made by way of uh, messenger RNA. So that to me was pretty interesting that the fact that we discounted this, but now you know the outcome data is, is coming out with regards to the rates, the differential rates between reinfection from a previous COVID infection versus a breakthrough case after you've been fully immunized. And so that that study, I think there's several, a total of 700,000 individuals, maybe it was more in um, in Israel. And so what they, and what's interesting about that particular study, have you covered this in depth on the show yet? No, please do. Dude, it, it's so fascinating to me. And so this, I think, was a, it was a game changer in how we should view natural immunity with regards to green passes and health passes and vaccine passports, because the rates of reinfection in individuals who had been previously exposed to SARS-CoV-2 prior to March of 2020, or March of 2021. So they they were accounting for when the Delta variant was circulating, right? Was it was a 13 times lower odds of reinfection compared to a breakthrough. So that was really interesting, and so it. It sort of makes sense mechanistically. We were talking sort of offline. Well, why would this be? You know, we, we know that these vaccines uh, can reduce disease severity and reduce risk of being hospitalized and all of that. But again, the mechanism through which these vaccines are working is on a single antigen of the, the virus, the, which is the S or spike protein. Whereas if you get the whole virus, you're getting the nuclear, the nucleocapsid, the envelope, you're getting the spike protein. And there's also these non-structural proteins called ORF1, ORF2. There's a lot of these. Anyway, so it's more robust and there's more redundancy. And so your T cells and your immune system is making immunologic memory to more targets so that when your body, when your immune system see those targets, when you're getting re-exposed, it's going to react. And what was interesting, since you and I last chatted in April, so I got infected in December of 2020, I've been tracking my antibodies every three months. My antibodies have actually increased since from, from their baseline levels in December, meaning that I had gotten exposed, re-exposed, and I didn't even know it, didn't get a cold or anything. And that to me, I think is quite fascinating. But yeah, the study in Israel was really compelling because the rates of reinfection were exceedingly low, even when the Delta variant was circulating. So again, the difference between all the different reinfection versus breakthrough infection studies that the CDC has been looking at wasn't really those datas, that data was not collected when the Delta variant was predominant. Whereas the Israel study started tracking data February 28th, I believe, to March 5th, or I'm sorry, August 15th of this year. And so again, we're talking about, I think in the unvaccinated group yet previously exposed, um, there was at least 60,000 people in that arm of the study. And I think there was 400,000 individuals in the fully vaccinated arms of the study and they got somehow infected or a breakthrough case between um, end of February and, and August. Now, what's interesting about that is due to that data and other related studies, countries like the UK and Italy and France are accounting for natural immunity. There was an editorial piece in the British Medical Journal that said, hey, look, why is the United States one of the few sort of westernized, you know, big um, medical, you know, innovative countries when it comes to medicine, why are we not acknowledging previous infection because they you know the epidemiologists have correlated have looked at the data and figured out and you talked about this before you know we can say on a 95% confidence interval that there's been at least 95,000 95 million cases up to maybe 130 million cases like we're pretty sure even though the confirmed cases are like what 45 million at this point something like that 
to be like, well, that's a that's like a third of the population. And then wh- why aren't we saying that these people don't need to like they're not immune until they have two doses or a booster or whatever. And it was interesting that this was in the British Medical Journal actually questioning why the US and other countries like Canada are not acknowledging previous infection given the data that the odds of a of a of a reinfection are exceedingly low. Yeah. That's so. not science to ignore that. And also getting us to this point is because of our immune system to even be sitting here in these chairs as humans to negate that natural immunity exists is just, I, it's beyond, it's very difficult to even comprehend that we even have to have this conversation. So to recap this, we've got for folks who've acquired COVID quote in the wild and they've developed antibodies in, in, a, in a spectrum of immunity, have about a 13 times percent reduced risk of reinfection versus folks who've been vaccinated. Correct. Yeah, the, the the probability is just much higher for a so-called breakthrough case compared to a reinfection. And again, this is data in large. We're not talking about twelve subjects here and thirteen subjects here. We're talking about tens yes. of th- yeah. So this data, and this is during the so-called Delta variant when it's circulating. So why are we not acknowledging natural immunity? I mean, that's the thing. It's like now there's all these false dichotomies going on where it's either everyone has to be vaccinated. Or you're an anti-vaxxer, where it's some you know, there's some gray area right here, and so we're not anti-vaxxers by saying that we should account for natural immunity. I mean, you know, if we think about like you and I growing up, Sean, um, you know, if if our cousin or our brother had chickenpox, you know, our parents were like, okay, you need to go hang out with your cousin or brother to get the chickenpox so that you're done, like chickenpox party. Yeah, chickenpox party. <laughs> but I mean, now the epidemiologists and so forth, and this was even in the journal Science, right? Who did the review and broke down the data from the um, from from the Israel study in August. It was August 20th, I think, when it came out. They were saying, hey, look, we got to have caution here. We don't want a bunch of high-risk people going to a COVID party. But they essentially said in the conclusion, like, natural immunity is more robust and more long-lasting than vaccine-induced immunity. Now, what's interesting is Pfizer funded this recent research that came out last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. And again, I'm not dogging on vaccines. I'm just, this is literally, I'm just, I'm the messenger telling you what the data said, that after six months, um, the efficacy has dropped to 20% in the vaccine. And that's, that's not 20% for risk of death or hospitalization. That still is fairly high in terms of preventing the odds of that happening, but preventing the fully vaccinated individual after six months, it's, it's the efficacy is about 20% for catching COVID, right? So you're like, okay, so we have data from other parts here in the US, Israel, other parts of the world. And here's what's even crazier, Sean, is going back to the, the MERS outbreak in 2003 and the first SARS-CoV outbreak, we know that those individuals have natural immunity, T-cell immunity from almost over 20 years ago. And this data is not new at all. Yeah. This has been published in 2020. And people have just gotten so... Um, sort of convinced that natural immunity doesn't matter, that it's a new virus, so it will sort of not behave like any other virus in nature. It's just going to be so different because it's new. But again, we have data showing that these T cells that we've been talking about, they're uh, impacted by exercise, our diet, and so forth. They're important because it seems that you're, if you had high levels of antibodies all the time, your blood would be pretty thick and viscous and you would be at higher risk of getting a stroke or a heart attack. So your, your antibodies naturally decline, but that's why your T cells are important because they are there to tell when, when you get re-exposed to say SARS-CoV-2, your T cells are going to yell at your B cells and your plasma cells. 
hey, make antibodies, right? So they are the communicator. Now, here's the problem is we have not helped people improve the functionality of their T cells. So let's just say, let's just pretend for a moment that these vaccines completely block COVID-19 transmission. Like you're never going to transmit the disease. If you, we should be also encouraging people to do things to make the vaccines more effective. That's been my qualm with this as well. And it goes back to some of the drugs that we, we talked about metformin. There were several studies in a drug called rapamycin, which is a known longevity enhancer that actually improves the efficacy that's been shown to improve the efficacy in individuals, get elderly individuals getting an influenza vaccine. So we have so many ways, you know, knowing this data, right? That after six months, efficacy of the vaccine has dropped to about 20% in terms of preventing an overall infection. Well, shouldn't we, why were we recommending or endorsing tacitly that people get donuts after they get the shots? You're like, that was just not a good public health campaign. And I know it, the government wasn't necessarily endorsing it, but the media was, was saying, hey, here's a little a little pro bono thing. You go get your shot, you get free donuts. For, yeah, here, for here in LA, it was the biggest coercion slash incentive, which is, you know, you get free food at McDonald's, burgers, fries. There's a massive uh, lottery as well that took place. They gave away like a hundred million dollars in gift cards and lottery and all these different things and, and not looking at education. And actually, again, how do we, if this is going to be an effective adjunct, what yeah. do we do to actually make sure that it's effective? Look, listen to this. So this is from UCSF, pretty close to us. UCSF, they found that sleep deprived individuals sleeping less than six hours per night in their study were 11 and a half times less likely to get protected by a vaccine than those who got adequate sleep. We're Should not front page news. We're, here's a donut. Yeah. How about we get some coaching on basic premises of human functionality, which right. is you need to sleep. Sleep is when your immune system is doing, scientifically speaking, a buttload yeah. of things to fortify your health. And 11 and a half times, that's a massive difference. You know, So these are the things that are not being talked about. And by the way, I pulled this up because I want to, to show you, and we'll put this, well, maybe we won't put this up on the video just in case, but they just, change and I don't know if you've been paying attention to changing the definitions of things mm. like in the dictionaries like the online dictionaries and such but in the Merriam-Webster dictionary it was just changed anti-vaxxer the definition was changed from a person who opposes vaccination to a person who opposes vaccination or laws that mandate vaccination oh my gosh because for me I'm pro-science I don't care what the what the uh interjection or the adjunct is, I don't care. So it's not inherently being anti-vaccine, but the mandates around these things, abandoning logic and ignoring things like natural immunity, like where's the science? And this is what I want to talk to you about, false dichotomy and having these conversations with folks because that's what science is. It's, it's looking at the data and having rational, logical conclusions. Well, we've got, as you mentioned, countries that are backing off on mandates around that and really honoring natural immunity because it exists. And as a matter of fact, it's very likely more robust. There are some studies showing, hey, maybe it's kind of similar, but the majority of high quality data that we have shows that it's more effective. And it just makes sense because it's providing a spectrum of protection versus just targeting the spike protein in an artificial kind of response. So let's talk about this false dichotomy because I know a lot of folks are having a difficult time having these conversations with family members, with friends, and we're in a tough situation where, again, 
jobs are forcing folks to be vaccinated, even if they've had a COVID infection, which is not really even logical. So what's the point? What's the point of forcing this upon somebody? Is this about actual protection or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, this is really, um, it's an important question because it's breaking up families, relationships, spouses. You know, people have different opinions about what they should do for their children. And I think the big, you know, again, if we, if we want to be science-based about this, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, or maybe it was Archives of Internal Medicine, one of the two show that the people that are most likely to have side effects from the vaccine are the people who had also been previously infected. So you're like, well, you're, you're having a much higher probability. And I'm not saying these vaccines are going to cause you to grow three arms, but we do know that side effects are a complication linked with immunizations, particularly these ones. So you're like, you're, you're basically telling that person that, you know, you're denying that their immune system has any memory to this virus. And then you're increasing the odds at which they're going to have a side effect as well. And the side effects are not totally benign, right? Some people have died. Some people have had embolitic or clotting events. Um, some people have had neurologic stuff. And, and so that's kind of, again, if we're going to be science-based about this, and I think a lot of people have just been convinced it's a similar false dichotomy with the face masking um, thing where it's like, if you don't wear a face mask, you must want people to die. It's creating this weird network tribalism thing where people identify more with what they disagree with. So it's kind of this phenomenon in, and there's been some video circulating about this. And that's really, I think it's really disappointing. I, honestly, I think it comes from the media being so dishonest saying, and again, I, you know, I will tell you the data is pretty clear that these vaccines do, do reduce risk of dying, right? The, the data has shown that. And I know there's some conflicting data there. And I, I looked at the data in Israel uh, and, and all of that, but they do not block transmission. That is that is obvious. The CDC's own study from every week, and I encourage any one of my video listeners and all that to check out the CDC's Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, MMWR. They always put out interesting things like the obesity in kids and all that. And there was an outbreak over the 4th of July in somewhere in the Hamptons. And that occurred in 73%, like 73% of people that tested positive were fully vaccinated in that and that literally that MMWR was what led to the renewed face mask mandates throughout the US, right? Look at that. So you're like, no one, people are like, they watch CNN and they hear about, oh, if you don't get vaccinated, you must want people to die. But the CDC's own study showed that it doesn't completely block transmission. In fact, if you look at the rates of hospitalization, there were six people from that outbreak, so to speak, in the Hamptons. Five of the six were fully vaccinated that ended up in the hospital. So you're like, well, if you just, took someone who woke up from a coma through all of COVID. And so they didn't have any emotional connection or skin yeah. in the game. And you shared with them this MMWR, they would be like, well, why are we mandating vaccines for people? And, and again, I'm not saying that people shouldn't get immunized, especially if they're higher risk or they're elderly, probably, you know, but, you know, clearly we're being told something that may not be totally true. It's, it's sort of like the double masking when you're out walking or hiking. You're like, what are the odds of getting outdoor trans transmission is like one in 10,000 or something. It's like infinitesimally small. So it's like this identity. It's like this religion, like you're part of the tribe if you, if you do this thing. So I don't know where we go from here. And, and so what I've been doing, because I'm personally, you know, my wife is Canadian and her, all her family is Canadian and they, uh, the only sort of network news they get up there is CNN. And so I know my in-laws oh are into the into everything that's going on from a mainstream medicine narrative standpoint. And so my mother-in-law will not let my wife go visit her, right? And I'm, I keep, 
we've all we've already had covid we've tested our t-cells tdetect.com is how you test it we've tested antibodies we all have that but she's like no that's that's not sufficient for me you know we we, we can't have you do that we, we need you to get immunized and she's like mom like i've already like you know anyway so it's creating this weird conversation like it's straining relationships oh, it's tough yeah that's so heartbreaking so heartbreaking uh, my wife's best friend um her father isn't talking to her mm. because she hasn't been immunized and she is literally the healthiest person in the family by far you know and it's again it's not about being anti-vaccine it's just like what's the right choice in this scenario based on my immune system my COVID exposure, all these other factors. And it's just like, get the vaccine or else, mm -hmm. which how are we even in this place? It's just like, truly, we started off like, you know what, guys, let's be careful about this social distance, you know, wash your hands to get this vaccination or you're going to lose your job or get this vaccination or else, you know, fill in the blank. And for our government to literally force companies in our society today to fire folks, to have to, you know, face litigation themselves or fines if they don't abide by this new government mandate. And the thing is, and this is that this is a very simple principle. This is new. It's not like this has been around for a few years. We have a, long, a lot of long-term safety data. As far as that's concerned, we literally have no idea because in a sense, it is changing how our cells operate. And most instances, some, some long-term side effects, you know, when most drugs hit the market, it's, it's on average, and we'll put a study up for everybody who's watching the video, it's on average about four years later when the drug is finally acknowledged to be problematic and recalled, right? Four years on average, that's mm -hmm. on average. And so the, the false premise here is that people know exactly what's going to happen. And literally nobody on planet earth knows what's going to happen. Nobody. We can hypothesize, we could say things look good so far, but if we're being honest about the data, things don't exactly look really good. There are a lot of very concerning things we've never seen before. Myocarditis in kids, like to such, to such a degree that it's, it's actually being acknowledged. And also, I just did a little piece that as of this recording, I've put it out everywhere. And I went and actually analyzed the various database, which is unnecessarily complex in and oh, of yeah. itself. And I brought forth this thing that's been talked about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of women with abnormalities with their menstrual cycle. And that was getting brushed under the rug, getting censored at, per usual. But some really great scientists, again, they're just like, I'm not anti-vaccine. I, I, I went and got vaccinated, but this thing happened. And I talked to some other female friends, scientists, and they like, oh, that, wow, that, that happened to me too. And so now, per this recording, the NIH has just launched, I don't know if you saw this, mm -hmm. they just launched uh, a big fund in providing uh, almost $2 million in funding for research to investigate the abnormalities with menstrual cycles for women who've gotten the COVID vaccine, because it's a big deal. The question is, why did it take over a year for it to get acknowledged? Because this was happening very early on in the campaign. Mm -hmm. So- you know, it's, it's great that people are asking these questions, but it's because of mediums like this and people really speaking up and forcing the conversation because the entities that are controlling these things, they would brush it under the rug per usual. So yeah, so we've got, and here's the question that I want to pose you. Yeah. And this again, we're just, it's just a hypothesis. What 
could be happening where we inject something into our arm and it's affecting our heart or it's affecting the menstrual cycle. Like, what is the underlying mechanism for that to even be a thing? Well, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because there was that study that I sent to you in, in Bristol University. Some scientists asked this very question, which I think, you know, and, and let me just pause before we dive into it. I think, honestly, this topic is so radioactive for even scientists to ask the question about what if this spike protein is not as benign as we think it is? We, we've assumed that it's just this benign sort of extracellular antigen. It's just like hanging out on the, on the SARS-CoV-2 and it doesn't cause any pathology or disease. There's, it's totally benign. But what if it's not benign? And, and I honestly think that scientists will get their funding cut, they'll get censored, they'll get ostracized from the medical community or research if they even ask this question. Because this question was asked by this group in, in the UK. And what they found is that this spike protein, it actually, so there's like 28 or 26 different S proteins or spike proteins on the extracellular part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's what enables it to latch onto your cells, like in your, your airway epithelia, uh, the endothelial cells in your lungs and in your heart and cardiovascular system. And that's what enables the virus to go in and take over your cellular machinery and replicate and so forth. Well, it turns out that there's hydrolytic or there's enzymes that snip the spike protein off the virus. And that's found, it's, the spike protein has been found in the urine. It's been found in the bladder, whole, in the whole blood. It's just circulating. It's going around. So these scientists were like, okay, well, what does it do? And they looked at different uh, human uh, hearts. So they looked at cadaver hearts. They took out different cells and they found that it alters the function of this critical cell in your entire circulatory system and microvascular system known as this pericyte. And it's also found in the brain as well. And so this pericyte is sort of like, uh, the, the best analogy that I created through, I'm not an expert in this, this field, but it's sort of like a, a janitor or a housekeeper within your cardiovascular system. Like it's helping the endothelial cells, like if they get damaged, help to repair them and help to make connections. And so this pericyte gets totally dysfunction it, through this so-called CD147 mechanism. It's more complex, but it triggers this intracellular signaling cascade of an inflammation that is the spike protein does in this critically important cell known as the pericyte, which is a, a really, it's like mortar in the bricks of your cardiovascular system, essentially. And so you ask the question, well, how are 17 year old kids getting myocarditis after uh, this, this vaccination? Like what is going on here? How are people getting strokes or blood clots in their brain? Or, you know, how, what's going on with the menstrual? It seems that one of the mechanisms could be this inflammatory induction and changing the functional activity of this very important cell type it's found in the heart, in your micro vessels throughout in the capillaries and so forth, and also in the brain. And again, I was, to me, I thought that study would have been referenced like a hundred times. Like so many people would have been like, okay, we got to dive into this. Let's put a pause button, especially on low risk individuals. But no, it hasn't been referenced once. And what was interesting, and I know you've, you've done this, you'll reach out to a scientist or an author uh, on a paper. They're super excited because they're in their research lab. They're publishing this stuff. They get back to you usually right away. I sent two emails to this group and I didn't hear anything back. And I, I would just want to know more like, hey, you know, maybe could we chat? And I heard it was crickets. And that, again, I'm, I'm totally speculating here, but I honestly think, again, this topic is so radioactive because of the potential implications of it turns out, because this is the, the platform or the delivery system for all of these currently available immunizations. And if it turns out that there is some iatrogenesis or unintended harms that were over, that weren't really fully thought through, yeah. that could be a bad, bad situation. So 
I don't know. That doesn't mean that no one should ever get the vaccine. I'm just saying like, okay, if this is true, why don't we recommend people exercise beforehand? You know, make sure that they're, if they have increased blood thickness or they are of, uh, they have a family history of clotting or, you know, hypercoagulation type events. Um, they're at higher risk for stroke. Like maybe they should maybe do some things beforehand, go on blood thinners, do something to maybe augment the potential side effects that are known that, that are known here from a mechanistic standpoint. Things come to mind like going in the sauna, uh, exercising, walking. Um, I find this with a lot of my male clients that I've worked with over the years, thick blood. So hemoglobin hematocrit are common blood tests that you find on your complete blood count, CBC. And in most men, because they're not menstruating, their blood is, is really thick. And so if, if maybe a family member or friend that you know of is going to go get vaccinated, maybe they should donate blood ahead of time so that their blood maybe might not be so thick and prone to coagulate if there is this off-target complication with clotting, potentially. Yeah. Um, so again, these are things that like, you know, again, you, you, you have to step back and go, okay, well, is this too complicated of a public health message? Is that why it's not being discussed? Um, is it just ignorance? Is it just that the system is so... It's not as efficient as we think it is. Um, like you said, we should be encouraging exercise and sleep to make these things more effective if people are, are going to go down that road. We should be doing things that are practical to reduce the potential downsides afterwards. So people, I'm sure you've gotten this question, hey, my employer's making me get this. What do I do? How do I detox? And so those are some things that I would suggest is um, donating blood, um, make it, making sure you're going the, in the sauna because sauna therapy improves microcirculation and improves the vasodilation. So that could be something very helpful. Obviously get a good night's sleep and not eat foods that are going to induce coagulation. So fried foods, processed foods, have a low glycemic index diet. Um, treat this like, like you would treat any sort of event that you would do that's important to you. Like maybe you don't drink for a couple of weeks beforehand, making sure you're walking, doing all these things leading up to it. Um, to make it more effective, number one, and also reduce potentially any downsides. Yeah, this is so great. Yeah, of course, I've been flooded with that question as well. And as you mentioned, just this topic is so radioactive. It's such a great uh, term to put with it. And you know, for for both of us, I know it's just it's bordering on insanity that we are in a situation right now as a culture in 2021 where we are not allowed to have these conversations on many of the biggest platforms where people are conversating. Like right. many of our interactions as, as, as humans have traversed over into this space where the conversation, natural immunity, for example, is censored on Instagram, for example. Like just being a rational human being, I don't think that has any place in the domain, especially, I mean, I, I believe the average person should be able to have their voice heard and to have these conversations. And you just to be able to have the wherewithal of like, Okay, that sounds crazy. Like, okay, getting vaccinated and now, you know, they've they've got one butt cheek is bigger than the other, whatever. Like, which is not to say it's not possible, <laughs> but you know, to just have something that's like a one off or just you know crazy thing that somebody says, like, just for you to be just to have some logic and be able to discern that for yourself as a human, I think that's part of the problem that we've gotten away where we need we need this parental figure in the form of our government and social media platforms to be the parent and tell us what's true and what's not. You know, that's a problem in and of itself, but I think we've devolved in our ability to think critically as humans in the first place, where I can see where they would sort of deem that to be appropriate, but even that still is not appropriate, but especially people who are credible scientists. Like what we do, 
I literally just, I'm looking at the data. And what I do is I'm going into it understanding we both have cognitive biases and I'm aware that I have a bias and I'm checking them at the door. I'm going in and looking for things to counter what I believe to be true so that I can come to a comprehensive understanding and then share that with everybody. Some stuff right now is so wrong. It's so total opposite of what people are being force fed that that's when I bring in the humor. That's when I bring in the the agitation in it because I just feel it in my spirit. Like, you know, this is the data clearly shows like 90% of it says this. Yes, there's some things that, because you could find data that proves just about anything, True. you know, but it's having the heart to say, you know what? I'm willing to be wrong. Let me go and look at this and put my bias to the side and look at this as a rational human being. And then from that place also, I think this is important too, is to have compassion in this time where there's so much infighting, people are being very illogical, and there's so much distance taking place where family members are fighting with each other. And you know, people are, you know, one, one incredible person, again, healthy human being, her, her business, her life is built around health. She's been friends with a couple of girls for you know, 10 years, and she just found out that she can't come to their wedding. You know, she was in the wedding, now she's, because she's not vaccinated, or, you know, there's a, another example where there's a vaccinated table that can't dance on the dance floor if you're not vaccinated. Like all of these things, it's just like, is this logical? Are we actually being logical or are we being CNN minded? You know, and it's not just CNN. Every major news outlet does this where they make us hate each other. And also we've talked about this multiple times here on this show, and I'm going to, to, to pull back from playing it again. But you know, the technical director at CNN, Charlie Chester, was caught with his own words saying that they're purposefully using fear for ratings. They're purposefully using fear to keep people glued to their televisions. And this is where, why they have that, the death toll ticker on the CNN, which I, I couldn't believe when I first saw it. I was like, how is, this even, how is this even socially acceptable that we are relenting human lives to these numbers, this ticking number? And he said in the segment that, you know what? I got to play it. I'm going to put in this episode. We're going to play it for you guys. COVID, gangbusters with ratings, right? Which is why we constantly have the death toll on the side, which I have a major problem with that we're tallying how many people die every day. Because I've even looked at it and be like, look at it and be like, let's make it higher. Like, why isn't it high enough, you know, today? Like, it would make our point better if it was higher. And I'm like, what am I rallying for? That's a problem yeah. that we're doing that. Why don't you guys at CNN show the recovery rates on the death tolls at least? Recovery rates? Oh, um, who's had it and then... Recovered. Recovered. Um, because that's not scary. That's, I, I, I would imagine that's why they don't do it. Yeah. yeah. That's what I figured. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. I like that. Uh -huh. I think um, no, no one ever says it, those things out loud, but it's obvious based on like the amount of stories that we do. Like the fact that we have a segment called the good stuff, which is a feel good thing, but it's dedicated moment at the end to like almost like be the ice cream to alleviate you know like everything that you've been through like you know like something sweet to end it with um 
because everything else is like doom and gloom. And the only people that we will have on the air, for the most part, are people that have a proven track record of taking the bait. I think there's like an art to manipulation. I think a lot of I think some people have figured it out inherently. But like in the, with the media or just like in media general? And in just <laughs> conversation. So he said in that segment that sometimes he would see the numbers and he would think we need to get those numbers higher. We need to have more deaths on the, on the screen. We need to get those numbers higher. And he confessed that that's wrong. I shouldn't be saying that. That's, that's really wrong. But that's the nature of the business. And also him having the premise that when she asked him, why don't we have a recovery ticker, right? Showing how many people are okay. And he said, he had to stop and think about it for a moment. He's like, that's not scary. Mm -hmm. If it bleeds, it leads. He said the thing that we already know, but this is somebody who's one step below the director of the, of the station saying that we're purposefully using fear. And, and my biggest issue is fear without context. Give some context here. Okay, these negative things are happening, but what about all the good things that are happening? Let's have some context so people aren't having irrational fear to where even if, you know, for example, with your wife, she's had COVID, her, you know, her antibodies, all the, the metrics are that of somebody who's probably more equipped at being safe around her parents. And it's just like, well, no, you got to get this thing because they said you got to get this thing. So, yeah, man, I, I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you and to have you on. And, you know, yeah. you're somebody that I reach out to. And we have these conversations. And if you could, let's offer a little bit of insight, just a little bit more digging, just a little bit deeper on what people can do right now when they are feeling that they're kind of cut adrift or they're being ostracized. And, you know, like a good example is, is your family, your wife. Like, how, how do you deal with a situation like that that can be really heartbreaking? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I don't know that I totally know the answers to that because um, it's really tough, you know? And, and, but I just visualize like, because I've thought like, okay, well, Deanna, how hard would it be just to go, maybe get one dose, you know, I'm just like, I just threw it out there as a, how would you feel? And so I would encourage people to do this exercise. And so I, I we, we both close our eyes and I was like, I would be so pissed. The nurse is getting the needle. I would be just, I would feel like crap. And, and she's a chiropractor. So she's working with people and she's heard the stories of the, the female patients who are experiencing some challenges with their menstruation and all that. And they say to her, I just want to get this thing out of me. That's what they've said. Mm, like those are yeah, their words. Many times too, yeah. And so it's just like, you know what, then we just have to stick to our values and, and know that that's probably being sort of, sounds weird, but maybe transmuted to us from a higher power. And we need to just, just stick to the core. And the good thing is there's a lot of people who, you know, find people who you can talk to. That's, I think the hardest part for people is they do not have someone they can talk to about these things and share frustrations and just share stories. And so find your, find your tribe or your group that you can bounce these ideas off. You know, um, this time will pass like any other. You know, the media, the cool thing or the bad thing about the media, they're on to the next, right? It, once people are, are done hearing about it, they're going to pivot to something else, the climate or whatever. And so this time will pass, you know, eventually enough people are going to get this, that they're not going to have a lot of uh, leverage, I don't think, over us is my hypothesis. Uh, I mean, if we think about all like the, the mortality rate of, say, the 1918 flu, it's way worse than this. And that was a two year de deal. So, I don't foresee this going on for 10 years, like, you know, maybe another into the winter of this year, and then probably we won't hear too much about it. But yeah, I think just stick to your values um, yeah. and find your tribe. 
That's great advice. Very simple and practical. Listen to your heart. Pay attention to your own values. And don't beat yourself up if you have relented in any of these instances because it takes a superhuman. Let's just be honest. It, it's very simple, but it's not necessarily easy at a time like this. So, um, you know, have compassion with yourself first and foremost. And uh, I think more than ever, this is time to listen to your heart, to, um, to, to, to stand for your own values, as you mentioned, and to connect with amazing people like you. So I'm grateful that you're in my life. And can you let everybody know where they can get more information about you, where they can check out your show, your incredible show as well? Sure, Sean. And again, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, it was so awesome to connect with you. I think just on Instagram, we started sharing some stuff and then you reached out to me and we have similar values and that is helping our kids. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing, but grateful to be here. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And, and so my uh, YouTube channel, which is where I post most things is high intensity health. So if people are interested in learning more about, you know, fasting, exercise and all that, they can check that out. So appreciate that. Awesome. My guy, Mike Mutzel, I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Awesome. Mike Mutzel, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Make sure to share this episode out like crazy. And of course, tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and tag Mike. He's at metabolic underscore Mike on Instagram and let him know what you thought about this episode. We've got some powerful masterclasses and special guests coming up very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.